0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking.
1: African-American journals and newspapers published many photos of demonstrators during the civil rights era. But they published even more photos of black travelers. Travel and activism may seem quite different, but they raise the same question. What is the meaning of freedom? It's Time to Eat the Dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Annette Joseph-Gabriel hosts Time to Eat the Dogs. She talks with Tiffany Gill about the history of African-American travel in the late 20th century and its broad appeal across class and gender. Joseph Gabriel is an assistant professor of French at the University of Michigan, College of Literature, Science, and the Arts. Gill is an associate professor of Africana studies and history and Cochrane scholar at the University of Delaware. She's the author of Beauty Shop Politics, African-American women's activism in the beauty industry. And she's also the co-editor of To Turn the Whole World Over, Black women, and internationalism.
2: Hi, this is Edna Joseph-Gabriel, and it is my great pleasure today to talk with Tiffany Gill. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited to have
2: this conversation for two reasons. Well, really for a lot of reasons, but I'm just (laughs) going to limit it to two here. Um, So the first is that you have a new book that's coming out at the end of this week, a co-edited collection titled To Turn the Whole World Over. Black Women and Internationalism, published by the University of Illinois Press. And edited collections are made up of many separate essays, right? But they also come together to tell a unified story. What unified story does your collection tell?
3: Yes, it's a really exciting week. It's always exciting when a publication that you've been working on for a long time finally comes to fruition. Um, And in this book, a book that I co-edited with um, Keisha Blaine, a book where you have a brilliant essay in it, which I'll talk about in a moment. (laughs) Um, But it tells a story of um, Black women's global engagement um, and really starts with looking at the late 19th century and brings that story all the way to the present. Um, And specifically, it engages this historical phenomenon that has been known by the name Black internationalism, right? And this term, Black internationalism, is one that refers to the transnational collaborations and solidarities and movements that people of African descent have forged throughout the globe, right? So the way that African descended peoples have seen their collective struggles against white supremacy, against racism, against forms of colonialism, the way that African descended peoples have sort of forged these transnational bonds with the hopes of overthrowing these systems. Um, But unfortunately, often when the story of Black internationalism is retold, it is often driven by by Black male intellectuals and activists and even artists, right, as if they were the the ones who were, if not the only ones engaged in this work, certainly the primary drivers behind these transnational collaborations. And so for myself um, and my co-editor, Keisha Blaine, both of us are doing work that really dispels this. And we join a host of other scholars that have also been doing this work, but there hadn't yet been a collection of essays that really try to engage this question from a multiple different perspectives, right? And so so one of the things that really sort of drives the book, sort of a a driving question, is this question of, you know, what happens to our understanding of Black internationalism if we center Black women's experiences. And as someone who's trained in African-American women's history, you know that's really been something that I've tried to do in my own work, that by centering Black women in the story, it's not just a matter of, oh, let's just add a few women to this story and the story doesn't fundamentally change. It, it really does change the contours of what we think we know about Black internationalism. And so um, the collection of essays, like which I said, includes a really wonderful essay um, that, that you wrote um, about Islanda Robeson, and I think she's a great example of this. Um, you know, she's best known as you know the wife of the singer and actor and activist and intellectual Paul Robeson, but was, as you demonstrate in your work and as Barbara Ransby and others have shown, like she was an intellectual and activist and even, some might argue, an adventurer, right, in her own right, um, and and you show how through her travels to the African continent, she's really making commentaries about um, colonialism and, and, and really sort of putting forward an intellectual agenda. Um, and that's really much of the work that is in this collection does very similar things, right? It shows how Black women use everything from leisure travel to quilt making, to performances, to scrapbooks, as well as more traditional forms of activism through writing and speech making how they really um, try to use these ways to connect across the globe with other African-descended peoples um, with the goal of improving the conditions of Black people generally, but really putting a focus and an emphasis on the conditions of Black women and Black children throughout the world. And so it's just been a really wonderful project to to edit and to read just this new cutting-edge scholarship that's really getting us to rethink what has Black women's role been in the world and how have Black women been at the forefront of, of global movements against white supremacy, racism, colonialism, and even sexism. And so it's, it's been a really fun project to work on and I'm so excited to get my hands on it next week.
2: Wow. Well, first of all, I have to just kind of encourage listeners to go out and get a copy of this book because I think it's going to be really amazing. But I'm really, really intrigued by the question that you just asked, right, is is what happens when we center Black women? Mm-hmm. Because that kind of brings us to the second reason that I'm, I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you today, which is that I recently heard you give a talk about Black women leisure travelers. And my last guest on Time to Eat the Dogs was Bianca Williams, who shared her research on contemporary Black women travelers. Um, You know, so um, African-American women who are traveling to Jamaica today. But your research includes a historical angle about Black travelers in the 20th century. Can you give us just kind of a broad overview? Who were these travelers and where did they go?
3: Yeah, and I loved your conversation um, and I love um, Professor Williams' work because I feel like, you know, we're part of this kind of growing community of scholars and writers who are really kind of thinking about um, this idea of the the Black freedom struggle or how African-Americans have engaged um, in battles for their own freedom in ways that are sort of unexpected, right? So going beyond the kind of traditional political narratives to really talk about how Black women and Black people sort of claim. Claiming happiness or claiming a place in the world is really a part of that study. And so, to give just a little bit of context on my work, um, to, to kind of give you a sense of where Black folks are going, the short answer is they're going everywhere. Um, and, and that's really <laughs> one of the things that, that kind of surprised me. And I, and I fell into this work sort of unexpectedly. Um, my, my first book was a book on African American um, beauticians and beauty salon owners and how they use their industry and use their shops to really um, put forward a political movement, right? And one of the things that I found was in the 1950s and 1960s is that these Black beauticians were taking to the world. They're traveling all over the world. They're going to Europe primarily, and they're engaging in these travels to, to, to kind of bolster their professional identities, but also as a way of them kind of reclaiming the right to leisure and the right for adventure and travel. And I thought it was kind of interesting and you know, as historians Do I was trying to make sense of these particular travelers? And so I went to the black newspapers, the black press, that extensive collection of of black periodicals that that in the segregated world were kind of covering black the black communities. And what I found really surprised me that in the 1950s and 60s, that black newspapers and black periodicals were, and I'm this is not an overstatement, they were obsessed. With black people traveling around the world, right? Yeah. They they have it in their society columns there. There have folks, whether they are correspondents who are reporting on the news, but often there were these little blurbs that would say things like, Doctor and Mrs. So-and-so have just returned from three weeks in Europe, and and, and they were everywhere. And these stories of of groups of women, particularly, traveling abroad, whether it's beauticians or teachers or nurses. And so when I wrote the first book, I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I I, I wrote, I got enough information to, to finish the book project, but I, I was still sort of haunted by these stories of, you know, why are these stories there? What do these narratives about Black folks moving around the world tell us? And I was also really intrigued by just the vast geography these travelers are covering. Um, you know, they're every Everywhere, literally any place imaginable, but but certainly the kind of three areas where they, they focused their travel were um, Europe, the African continent, and the Caribbean. And so I started trying to make sense of this and, and, and started developing a, a research project. And I thought this was a story just about the post-World War II era, which opens up Travel for Americans more broadly, right? Like this is the jet age. This is the era in which airline travel is making it possible and making it cheaper for people who had never gone, for example, to Europe to be able to go. So I said, okay. So black folks are a part of this. But as I began doing more of this research, I began to realize that this was more than just a story that em- emerges in the post-World War II era. But to really make sense of black travelers and why they're going and where they're Going and the challenges they're faced, I needed to actually tell a broader story that actually begins at the turn of the 20th century and comes all the way up to the 21st century. And so, what I found, um, and a couple of things have really surprised me. One, the the geography that these travelers are covering, but also who was going, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, if you think about international travel and the expenses, even today, um, it's not something that that a lot of people can can. Afford. Ford. Um, and particularly if we're looking at the era of segregation, um, the era of, of just economic, intense economic disenfranchisement for African-Americans, the thought is like, OK, the folks who are traveling abroad are clearly those of the Black elite. And certainly the Black elite is doing this traveling. But also what began to intrigue me was that it wasn't just a story of the Black elite traveling, but we have uh, religious groups and religious leaders. We have, you know, church Sunday school teachers and school teachers, period, which were probably the largest group um, that were traveling. Uh, Folks who would save money for two, three, four, five years putting away money. Um, We would see also even examples of demand domestic workers who would work their way around the world as a way of traveling. Um, So it's a much broader story. Um, And so I I wanted to try to figure out, you know, I started thinking about how we know a bit about the perils of travel for African-Americans in the domestic space, right? That we know that Jim Crow laws existed and segregation laws existed. And there were sundown towns where African-Americans were not permitted to be after dark. I, you know, we even can look at the renewed interest in things like the Green Book, where, you know, we, we have this sense of how African Americans had to really kind of plan and navigate to, to make it safely from one destination to another, not just in the South, but all across the US. And so the question I began to think about is like, well, how does that work in an international context? And one of the things that sort of got me thinking about it is that the Green Book, which has been talked about quite a bit, there's a, you know, Hollywood feature film, there's a documentary, the documentary Is much better than the feature film, in my opinion, but (laughs) um, that's another story for another day. But one of the things that that surprises me is how one of the things that's overlooked about the Green Books is that they always covered international destinations. Well, really, not always, but pretty early on from its inception, their destinations in South America and um, throughout Central America and Europe and Africa. And so I began to think about, well, we don't really know what it was like for African Americans who wanted to travel internationally, Right. Um, Were they denied things like the right to purchase tickets? What happened on steamships where there are people who are used to a particular kind of segregation order and they're now on a boat for 14 days with a group of African-Americans? What happens? You know, what happens when African-Americans get abroad? While there is this narrative that um, traveling abroad will be an escape from racism, certainly um, as, as many of us have, have researched and talked about and your own work shows us that, you know, anti-Blackness unfortunately has, has much wider reach um, and that there man- you know there's anti-Blackness all throughout Europe and South America and Central America and Asia. Um, what happens when African-Americans are denied service when they go abroad, right? What? How did they navigate this? You know, where did they go to try to um, to alleviate this? And so I've I've just found this really rich and interesting story um, that I talk about this tension between the the perils and the pleasures of travel. This idea of escaping segregation and racism, but also having to be savvy and getting information on how to navigate those very things once they go abroad. So it's just been this this rich story. I have more sources. That I know what to do with. We're like, oh, what are you finding for this? I'm like, <laughs> black folks are traveling so much that it it's actually overwhelming um, in this book, but it really just tells this hidden story um, that this is not something new to the 21st century, uh, but something that has much earlier roots.
2: Wow, I mean, I have no idea how you're working through such a such a dizzying <laughs> scope of of sources because you know, like you said, we'll we'll usually think about black travelers as this, you know, relatively small um group of elites, you know, like Islander Robson will jet off to Paris or London, etc. But I mean Sunday school teachers, domestic workers, this is this is a really large scope. And I'm also really fascinated by the destinations that you mentioned, right? So of Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean as being three primary destinations. And I mean like The reasons why a Sunday school teacher would go to Africa would be different from why a domestic worker will try to go to the Caribbean, for example. So, in terms of what you're seeing in this archive, what really motivated travel in this period? Was it the result of climate or events in the United States? Was it the attraction of the destinations? Or was it a kind of a combination of push and pull factors?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's some major push and pull factors that are always kind of interplaying. And, and as I'm moving this work through the 20th and into the 21st century, I see that in, in certain historical moments, certain factors are drawing and, and compelling people more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely think this we can't underestimate this idea of traveling abroad as a way to be treated differently um, than you would be treated if you were at home. And this is something that's particularly appealing um, for middle-class African-Americans who do have some money to spend, but are very limited and where they can actually go enjoy leisure because of the systems of segregation. So the international space does open up some new possibilities for them. Um, The other big piece that I see as well um, is is part of what the the beauticians were after, or at least on the surface what they were saying um, the reason for their trips were, which were for educational purposes or for professional meetings for African Americans to engage in some of this work of Black internationalism by connecting connecting with African-descended people in other parts of the world who are in their profession. So we have, for example, groups of African-American doctors and African-American nurses and teachers going to even places like Mexico to learn about how to engage in certain kinds of educational practices, um, religious motivations as well um, of African-Americans who are parts of denominations and being engaged in both interracial um, and African-descended uh, Um, communities of people who share their religious beliefs. Um, And then, of course, I think there is something of a class dynamic to it, right? Mm. That because these trips were often covered so much in the Black press, travel can become a status symbol of sorts, right? And so I, I, I noticed that in moments where there are tensions or there's some kinds of shifts in the way that class is understood. So, for example, in the post-World War II era, where there's a kind of transformation about um, and a growth of the middle class, both among the, the mainstream population, but also among African-Americans, that that travel becomes a way to kind of prove to others that you are, in fact part of this new middle class or cosmopolitan class, right? So so traveling and coming back with souvenirs, etc. And then also there's a great deal of what we might think of as heritage tourism, um, which is something that is often associated um, in the sort of late 1970s and 1980s when um, Alex Haley's book and miniseries Roots comes out um, that really begins, the, the narrative is that that really begins to propel African-Americans, for example, to want to travel to Africa to connect with their roots. But but actually, in the period of, of decolonization in the 1950s, we see groups of African-Americans always wanting to be on hand when Ghana um, becomes Ghana and when Nigeria gets away from British colonial rule, that African-Americans are also participating in that as well. And then, of course, there is the enjoyment pleasure, leisure factor, which I think um, Bianca Williams's work does so beautifully, that for African Americans, this very act of even wanting to be free in terms of enjoying oneself is a political act of sorts and so you know a lot of times these other things were pretenses for them to really go and see the world sites and to enjoy them and to come back with souvenirs and slideshows and stories to share with their community So um, really lots of, of factors that are drawing African Americans and also compelling them them to to travel abroad.
2: Okay, so we have a sense of who traveled, which is, everyone, um, and where they went, which is pretty much everywhere, Um, and now the why, right, which is a combination of class factors, of political factors, but I I want us to try to kind of get a a sense of, of a particular anecdote, for example, so I want to come back to this formulation that you've used a number of times now, right, in asking what are the pleasures and perils of traveling, and I want to combine that with the first question you asked, which is what happens when we center Black women? So among the women that you research, particularly Black women travelers, is there one who comes to mind as having travel experiences that illustrate possible answers to this question of pleasures and perils?
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the, the great things about this project is that it's really just opened up a whole new world of, of African-American women that um, I think should be a part of our understanding, our historical understandings, but aren't. And and probably the one that comes to mind who figures prominently in my work is a woman by the name of Freddie Henderson. Um, and Freddie Henderson has this really interesting life. She was born in, in um, Louisiana. Um, she trained, actually, to be in fashion, um, so fashion design and fashion merchandising. Um, she she um, studies home economics as a way to engage that and then goes on to get eventually get a master's degree in fashion merchandising, the, the first Black woman to do that at NYU, at New York University. She gets married. Her and her husband move to Atlanta. Uh, she starts teaching at Spelman College. She teaches in um, the uh, Applied Economics, which was like home ec and and sewing and fashion, and um, she becomes the head of the director of an organization known as the National Association of Fashion and Accessory Designers, which was essentially a professional organization for Black women in the fashion business. And so she serves as the president of that organization. And in 1950, she's president. And they have this very, um, this this gathering of of the women from NAFAD. And they have an event at the Waldorf Astoria. And uh, one of the people that they invite to the event is the wife of the French ambassador to the U.S. And the wife of the French ambassador comes and she's really just taken by how fashionable these women are, how culture these women are, and she asks Freddie Henderson, you know, well, have you ever been to europe um you know, sort of thinking about Paris as the center of fashion in the post war world um, you know, have you come to europe before you know and and she was surprised that neither Henderson nor any of the women in NAFAD had actually traveled abroad at this point. And so she invites them. She's like, you all have to come to this country. You know, you have to come to Europe. You have to partake of the various fashion shows. It would be great. So um, it takes a couple of years, but in 1954, Henderson and a group of 10 other women travel to Europe. And they have amazing time. They go to the fashion shows um, and they have a wonderful time. Uh, Freddie Henderson actually reports on the shows for the Black press and when she comes back home, she talks to her husband and she said, you know, I think more Black people would travel out of the country if they knew how easy it was. Right. Cool. Just this little C that like, wow, this this is something that was so amazing to all of us. We had such a great time. And so eventually her and her husband um create what is called the, the Henderson Travel Agency in 1955. And this agency goes on to to be one of the most important businesses or even organizations, I would say, in exposing African-Americans to the globe. Um, By the time Henderson dies in 2006, the agency is credited with taking over 50,000 African-Americans around the world. Um, And I think it's just, uh, you know, when we think about these stories of internationalism, that there are certain figures that rise to the top. Um, But to me, who better exemplifies Black internationalism than this woman who Mm -hmm. creates this agency that literally is responsible for taking tens of thousands of African-Americans abroad. And she really shapes the discourse of travel. So, for example, she plans the travel itineraries for the delegation of African-Americans that goes to Ghana in 1957 for the um, Ghanaian independent celebrations. And among those, the reason why she ends up getting connected to that group is that a friend of her and her husband's who was part of their circles in Atlanta, a man by the name of Martin Luther King, um, and his wife, Coretta Scott King, who uh, Freddie Henderson um, helped, basically served as sort of an informal stylist to her, um, wow. you know, was telling them they wanted to go. And she had never been to Africa before. This is before the creation of the, the slave castles and the infrastructure of, of tourism that exists today. And she basically helps to create that infrastructure and, and really, I argue, ha- plays an important role in kind of reshaping American African-American ideas about Africa, about West Africa in particular. So, so she's one of those folks who, who helps Black folks travel to these places, but also was very much impacted by her own experience abroad and knew that this was something that people in her circles, people that she knew, uh, would want to be a part of. And so to me, I am like, there is no conversation about black internationalism in the 20th century mm-hmm. um without Freddie Henderson and, and my work. I'm I'm trying to just just bring her to to her rightful place mm-hmm. in that conversation.
2: Wow. I have like a hundred follow-up questions about Freddie <laughs> Henderson right now. I mean just because there are these amazing connections that you know you're teasing out between between leisure between economic mobility and and political action right that all of these three things are kind of coming together in her story but kind of mm-hmm. b- before before i get to to that follow up question i'm i'm wondering about the way that fashion as a kind of artistic self expression becomes her in into this travel into this world of travel and when we think about the experience of traveling now right photography right it becomes that kind of equivalent artistic self expression that's a, a key component of the travel experience right so this kind of desire to document one's experience um, i'm thinking about like the selfie stick which i rail i rail <laughs> against and then kind of came and got one myself right but you know so i I'm, I'm wondering in addition to these narratives and stories that you're telling in your work. What about the images? Do you find photographs to be an important part of the archive that you research? And if so, what story do these photographs tell about how Black women fashioned themselves through their leisure travel?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they. I mean, I, there are days when I'm supposed to be writing when I just get lost in my photographic archive for this project. There's so many just incredible images, right? Because, you know, travel is so connected to that, right? Did it really happen if you don't have a picture of it, right? Like, right. were you really there unless you have a picture? Um, and, and, you know, as much as we think of 21st century folks um, and sort of, you know, how conscious we are about selfies and all that, I mean, the, the African-Americans, particularly um, those that are traveling the post-World War II era, but but even earlier, as, as photography is becoming more and more popular, that it's totally connected to travel. So so for example, when one would get on either a steamship or an airplane, this is the era when a photograph was taken of that, mm-hmm. right? So I have... All these just amazing photographs of Freddie Henderson and other folks that have traveled on the jetway of a Pan Am jet, and the the jet is behind them, and they're standing there, and they they are impeccably dressed, right? So they these women would talk about the clothing they would have made for these for these trips, right? That that part of it is about kind of the you know some might argue this kind of this this kind of showing off what you have, but but I think it's it's deeper, right? And and for me that when, when I I started rethinking these photographs and and beginning to think about them as evidence of kind of Black quests for freedom or African-American desires for freedom is when I juxtaposed the images in the Black press, um, particularly um, spaces like Ebony Magazine, which would often have these multi-page pictorials of African-Americans traveling abroad. And juxtaposing that archive with our archive that we typically think of as photographs of the civil rights movement, right? So we're thinking about those images that immediately come to mind of African Americans being chased by dogs, being sprayed by fire hoses, being attacked, etc. And when you look at the Black press in the same period, in the 1950s and 1960s, there are more images of African Americans traveling than they are of those who are getting beaten w- through the civil rights movement, and, and what I want is this kind of th- what I've been thinking about in my work is is how these two these two narratives are in conversation with one another at this really important moment, and, and I posit that they both are giving presentations of what freedom looks like, right? That, that it is about sort of the struggle for freedom, but also the images of African-Americans in front of the Eiffel Tower, at Westminster Abbey, in Morocco, in Asia. Is really kind of them claiming their space in the world, right? It is about them kind of demonstrating through their own deportment and their dress this sense of dignity, this sense of joy, this sense of pleasure, and the sense that, like, yeah, we have a claim to the world. And 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 that I think is a is a as radical an act as even those who are putting their bodies on the front line during the freedom struggle. So so yeah, the, the images are beautiful and stunning, but I think they also, because so many of them were covered in newspapers, they're also telling another story.
2: So I'm so intrigued by this idea of leisure as part of what that multifaceted image of freedom looks like, right? So that there, there are multiple angles at which we can start to understand the sort of composite notion of, of what it means to claim, like you're saying, one's place in the world. And so in, in my conversation with Bianca, we we talked about travel and, and hashtag self-care as a political practice, right? So leisure as political practice. In the research that you're doing in the archives that you've looked at, do you see any intersections between leisure travel and political activism, I, I guess, more concretely, particularly for mm-hmm. Black women travelers then and now?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think and I think kind of my my scope of research is always about getting us to rethink leisure and activism as two separate things. Um, One, because many of the goals of the kind of activism of Black freedom struggles, particularly in the US, but even abroad, are about claiming leisure space, right? And we think about, you know, the sit-ins at at restaurants or at beaches and all of that. It is about claiming one's right to access certain kinds of leisure spaces. Um, But also that the work of leisure, particularly for populations like Black women whose bodies, you know, are often either under the thumb of wage labor or have other kinds of surveillance, um, that these acts of leisure become really important. Um, And even we think about today with all of the um, kind of hashtags of, of black folks, particularly black women, who have been vilified for enjoying themselves. So we have in 2014, I believe it was, or 2015, the group of Black women who were on a train, a wine train going through Napa Valley and the police get called onto the train to pull them off because they were laughing too loudly. Or a group of Black women last year in York, Pennsylvania, who were playing golf and were so excited to have this golf membership. And they get the police called on them because someone said that they were moving too slowly and they get in terror it about why they're there. That this, this tension between when Black folks are trying to enjoy themselves, it often does bring about a police presence. And so for African Americans claiming leisure and saying they have a right to it, and even flaunting it a bit, I think is very much in conversation with what some of the other actions were during the Black freedom struggle.
2: Right. I mean all of those examples I think are bringing to mind even something like um you know like what it means to 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 barbecue in a public space and then have the right, police called, right? In, right? Is, what I'm hearing is is that part of your research is also helping us to better understand some of the things that continue to happen today, right? When black people yes. claim leisure and their right to it because it's also partly claiming public space. So I guess I'm just wondering as a kind of a a, a final um, question to wrap up this amazing conversation today. are Are there any resources, any books, any archives, any journals or newspapers that you would point our listeners to who might be, you know, either professional or avid or amateur historians to begin to get a sense of some of the primary sources for this kind of study?
3: Yeah, well, absolutely. The as I mentioned before, the black newspapers, the black press. If you have oh. access to any kind of archive from either local African American newspapers and, and communities like the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Washington Afro American, or even the ones that had national reach like Ebony and Jet, um, you really will begin to see that archive. I'm also really interested in, and my work brings us to the contemporary period about the the contemporary conversation um, that African. African Americans are having about international travel and this idea of a new Black travel movement in the 21st century, which, as my research shows, is not actually new, but I do think it's a new manifestation of it. And so, organizations like Nomadness Travel Tribe, um, and I'm really fascinated by the um, the Black women that lead it. So Evita Robinson, who has really just kind of created this this space for for Black young travelers to be taken seriously. By the travel industry, um, travel noir. Even as I travel internationally, it's a space that I go in, and and look to um, different travel blogs because they're very interesting. Because you'll go on these blogs, and and sometimes if I'm going to a country that I've never been before, and I want to know what is it like to be a black person in that space, I can't go to Fromers. I can't go to the you know Rick Steves, which I love his show, his travel show, right? Like you know, that's not where I'm going to get that information. I might get other information, right. but for the specific information about what it means to be a black traveler in these space, you really have to go to these other online communities. so nomadness um, is one of them. And, and really just folks keeping their eyes and ears open um, when they are looking at organizations, etc, to see where international travel has intersected with the lives and organizations that are very common to us um, in African American history.
2: I've been talking with Tiffany Gill about her research on black travelers in the 20th and 21st centuries, who they were, where they went, and why. Be sure to get a copy of To Turn the Whole World Over, Black Women and Internationalism to be published this week by the University of Illinois Press. Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Thanks so much for having me. I loved our conversation.
1: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat, Make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration-related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at timetoeatthedogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.